Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 13. Everybody to the limit, everybody come on, Fahokwa Gods! What? Everybody to the limit, everybody to the limit, everybody come on, Fahokwa Gods! I don't know who it is, but it probably is Fahokwa Gods. What? It was an artifact of early internet culture. One that I apparently missed. Yeah, this would have been back in like... 2001, 2002, thereabouts. This is what would be considered deep internet today. Not shallow internet? Deep prehistory of the internet. This is Homestar Runner level. Oh. So what you're saying is we're old. Yes. Yes, I am saying that we're old. (laughs) Good to know. Where we will be looking at chapter 22 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of knowing your limits. Oh, right. (laughs) The end of the uh, intro. Sorry, guys. Anyway, on to my part. Short explanation of the podcast, or at least a quick one. Each week, we'll be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, or you really don't care about spoilers, or you've had a very specific kind of brain surgery that removes spoilers or the caring thereof from your psyche. I'm not as good at this as Will is. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right. So with that out of the way, I hope you have your uh, speed reading muscles warmed up because it's time for you to do a recap. I mean, are there such things as speed reading muscles? Metaphorically. So I metaphorically have warmed them up. Yep. Got it. All right. I've got 45 seconds on the clock in three, two... One, go. Quoth spends most of the chapter explaining the ins and outs of adept sympathy and tries to impress us with tales of how he can do all sorts of impressive things to candles in far-off rooms despite battling injury, heat exhaustion, and other students. Later, he has a heart-to-heart with Exodol, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite teachers at the university. This is followed by yet another trip to Emory, where Quoth fails to find Denna and instead chats with our old friend Threp. Of course, they talk about Denna and her patron. Then Kvothe starts feeling like he's cooking from the inside out and jumps into a stream to cool off. Finally, he walks home soaking wet, freezing, and afraid. 34.9 seconds. I didn't even need to warm up, did I? We chose as our theme this week, Knowing Your Limits, because really what we're seeing here is Kvothe continuing his old theme of trying to do everything to the maximum of his abilities at all times, and not understanding why he's hitting a wall. Or not understanding that he's hitting a wall. Yeah. How much more impressive would this young man be if he actually took proper precautions and paced himself well and didn't just try to go at a full gallop all the time? We see that 
he is so caught up in the myth of Quoth, who is this invincible student who can do everything at prodigy genius levels. Quoth the Arcane. He's unwilling to actually show any kind of weakness either to himself or to his teachers. Like, we start out with him explaining just how boring he finds adept sympathy. However, it does explain that while apparently they don't learn normal math, like arithmetic, geometry even, they seem, though, to expect everyone to just intuitively understand that stuff. And then, uh, let's see, what are the things that he has to do in this class? We memorized tables of figures and learned how to calculate escalating squares, angular momentum, and compounded degradations. So, no math, but physics. Well, keep in mind, most of these are children of either landed gentry or merchants who are already given basic schooling before they come to the university. But not Quoth. So therefore, continually being a prodigy that has no basis in real life because seriously, this stuff, you need to learn it. You can't just do it. You have to learn it. It's really only when Minette actually explains what happens when you get any of this wrong that Quoth starts taking it seriously. So we start off with Pat almost doing the thing that he's saying that Elksadal is doing, which is going into all of the minutiae and then realizing that absolutely no one wants to deal with all of the minutiae and then <laughs> giving us something more interesting to chew on. Quoth talks about how the sort of information that they shared with Denna at the bar, I mean, it's all true, but it's also all simplified. And there are more ways to go into all of the detail of, yeah, of course, that energy has to go somewhere. And some of it does go back into the sympathists. But much like the way that Quoth kind of exists in this land of there's no consequences, they skipped over consequences. One of those things is what is known as slippage, where heat energy goes back into the sympathist. And every year or so, some careless sympathist with a strong alert channeled enough heat through a bad link to spike his body temperature. Interesting that they say his. Anyway, there body temperature, and drive themselves fever mad. And then because this is talking about like every year this kind of happens, the thing that pops into my head is the thing that happened every year in my science class, which is my chemistry teacher blew bubbles using methane and then lit them on fire, which inevitably, at least once every time, set off the fire alarms. Sounds about right. Was there anything like that that you're science teachers did? No, my science teachers were way more boring. Aw. Yeah. However, one thing that I'm very glad about is that no one microwaved themselves. I know, right? <laughs> Cooking yourself from the inside out. Really? Ew. And then it sounds like that's just urban legend or that Elksadol is trying to scare their kids. Kids. They're not kids. Scare students. They're all, like, college-level except for Quoth. Like, they're college-aged. Quoth is trying to make us all believe that he's Ronan Farrow and that he went to college as a teenager. That's kind of Quoth's jam. 
thing people forget is that the teenager in college is really not the cool one. No. They don't get to have any of the fun. No, they're kind of a novelty for like a week, and then they're just annoying. Anywho's, Manette, of course, was a student when this happened, because Manette has been a student forever. I do not know how long forever is, but he's an older gentleman, and he has been at that school forever. Of course he has first-hand experience with a horrific story like that. And I don't know what's more frightening, the grisly detail that he goes into or the casual offhand nature that he has about it. Right. He says something along the lines of, you can only feel so much pity for an idiot. The building stunk for a year. Couldn't use it. The callous nature of his response to this. I think that's part of what makes it hit so hard. Because you can only be that callous if it's something that's a lived experience. There is a horrific story that keeps getting brought up between you and one of our friends that you work with about one of the buildings in Microsoft and what happens with non-functional elevators. Oh, yeah. Ah. The story, like, it's in my head and I'm not going to retell it because I have empathy for people in stories... Like, I have a hard time watching people get hurt in films, even when I know it's fake. But knowing that this really happened just makes all of the nerve cells in my whole body just, blah, just clinch. I'm sorry. Anyway, moving on. As if cooking yourself wasn't bad enough, Quoth also talks about kinetic slippage, which can result in tearing your own arm off at the shoulder... Again, with Manette, with the kind of callous, off-handed comments, takes a special kind of stupid to do something like that. And not for nothing, and this kind of makes me sound like an awful, awful person, but at the same time, I know enough people who are also in this boat right now. But there's been this rash of news stories that has broken through even my own kind of isolated, I only watch news programs that show up on YouTube. So I don't have cable news and I don't have just the normal evening news. But everything that I've seen trying to encourage people to get the vaccine for COVID-19, almost every single one of them is currently, this person railed against getting the vaccine and now they're dead because they didn't get the vaccine and their family wants you all to know that you should get the vaccine. And any loss of life to this is tragic. Every single instance is terrible. But there is that part of me. There's absolutely that part of me that is like, what they expect? At a certain point, it does turn into sort of a pitch black Darwin Awards sort of humor. Yeah. I hate that that shows up in my brain, but it takes a special kind of stupid. Also, I gotta say, I think that Manette's casual disdain for the stupidity of the people who've tried these sorts of things is what shocks Kvoth into actually paying attention, because Kvoth prides himself on not being a special kind of stupid, even as he is very much a special kind of stupid. He's just been lucky. Yep. Lucky in a way that he doesn't recognize, because he sees all of the other negative things in his life, and he thinks that there's no way that he's possibly at all any bit lucky. 
But the fact that he's not just horrifically disfigured or cooked from the inside is not necessarily due to skill. It's what Stan Lee coined as the Parker luck when describing Spider-Man. <laughs> like Spider-Man in his own mind has terrible luck. Like bad things just are constantly happening to him. And, you know, there's all sorts of tragedy that's befalling him. But then Johnny Storm thinks that Peter Parker is the luckiest guy in the world. So the Human Torch recognizes that Spider-Man finds himself in all of these situations where he is hopelessly outclassed. Like, he's equipped to handle your run-of-the-mill bank robber, and he's dealing with Galactus. Things that he really has no business walking away from, and yet, time and again, he somehow manages to do so. And at the same time, Spider-Man, or Peter Parker, happens to be blessed with a loving family, such as it is, in the form of Aunt May, and later Mary Jane, all of these things that Johnny, as a member of the Fantastic Four, arguably the Marvel's first family and one of the more popular and wealthy members of society, wishes that he had. Foth doesn't realize how lucky he is. He doesn't realize that he walked away from an encounter with a Chandrian. That's pretty miraculous and lucky. He survived multiple years living by himself on the streets, mostly due to luck and the kindness of strangers. He's managed to survive an encounter with Bone Tar, <laughs> not to mention the Dracus, and then the burning of Traven. All of this stuff, he is lucky that things bounced the right way. And yeah, he's definitely capitalized on some of these bits of circumstance, which, you know, there's something to be said for that. But it wasn't all skill. It wasn't planning. It almost certainly wasn't him being naturally that good at everything. Most certainly was not planning. Nope. Anyway, at this point, we get an escalation to the dueling. And after class, Elksadol even confronts Kvothe about it and says, So, does anyone even bother to bet against you any longer? I think Elksadol is more plugged into what his students do than people give him credit for. I agree. In fact, I think the decision to say, hey, we're going to turn this into a competition is what turns these from rote exercises into something that his students actually want to do. Like, he knows about the betting. In fact, I think he probably encourages it. Elksadol reminds me a bit of my favorite teachers at DigiPen, who are not nearly as clueless as some of the students might expect and who know what's going on behind the scenes just as well as they do. Not only that, Elksadol is a keen observer of human behavior in a way that Kvothe maybe doesn't give him credit for. And it's also telling that Kvothe's first instinct when asked, how are you doing, is to lie, even as he's been run through a blender the past couple days. Not even two days. Day. Less than 24 hours. I actually have a note here <laughs> because he's talking about how the day after he fell off the roof, he's doing all this stuff that, like, 
despite this and despite that, despite my recent trip to the Medica, despite my throbbing bruises and stinging itch from my bandaged arm, despite the fact that the second best person in this class is opposing me, despite, 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 I'm still the best. And at the bottom of page 194 is where it's like the day after my assault on Ambrose's rooms. And I have a note that's just like, he just been in the Medica for heat exhaustion like that morning right what the heck then i read more and i'm like oh and he acknowledges that it's just like what and throughout all of this elks at all is like so how are things going how, how you doing and at every turn quoth is trying to say yes things are great when they most certainly are not great he's like well i mean i have a little bit of a chill can we stand next to the brazier it's like, you really shouldn't show up to class if you're not feeling well. Right. And I like that attitude a lot. I like it a lot because there are some teachers that I will not name that I have run into that are like, hey, guess what? I'm going to incentivize you to come to my class no matter if you are on death doorstep by making you have to answer questions that are only asked during class and can only be answered for credit during class. Ugh. And I'm like, oh, please, please tell me that that got changed. You do not want to encourage people to show up sick. This is how the entire student body at my school kept getting sick because they'd go to a convention that people didn't want to avoid going to because they were sick. They were like, I bought my ticket and I traveled here and I'm going to touch everything and breathe on everyone. And then immediately after PAX, Immediately, school starts. And everyone is like, I'm not missing school. Also, if I miss school, I'm going to be screwed. Get everyone sick. Yeah. It also boils down to people then carrying that attitude into the workplace. Yes. And a lot of workplaces incentivize that attitude. I hate it. When they don't have good work from home policies, when there's sort of this idea that if you want to get paid, you have to show up. We're going to limit the amount of sick time you have, and we're going to place barriers on you using it. So people show up when they really have no business doing that. And those people are not heroes. They are people who are harming the rest of their team. Yep. Anyway, moving on. And it's also here where he starts asking if Elksadol knows any names, which is kind of rude. I am not necessarily a fan of the next little sentence here it's 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 like asking a man how often he makes love to his wife eh, like there are many other examples of something that isn't quite rude but also just taboo be asking like how long do you take in the bathroom but it does get the point across but nonetheless quoth is young dumb and stupid so he presses forward he's already been told hey, you know, back off a little bit, young man. And he's like, I didn't hear anything. That didn't sound like anything to me. You never answered the question, how many do you know? <laughs> right. And we find out that Elksadol knows fire. And one other. Which he's going to keep close to the vest. We also find out here that Quoth is kind of like, well, why can't you just teach me how to do naming? I don't like learning it from Elodin. I feel like all of the things that I wanted to learn are things that he just doesn't want to teach. Okay. 
that's actually not it. Eladin is teaching that stuff, it's just that he's not teaching it in the way that Quoth wants to learn it. I mean, there is a thing to be said for trying to teach to a person with the style that they were receptive to. Which I actually have seen things that are scientific breakdowns and studies and whatnot about how that's not really accurate or true. But I think in the same way that the placebo effect makes things that aren't actual medications work like medications, that the thought that you do learn best in a certain situation or like a visual learner or an audio learner or a kinesthetic learner shapes your mind to believe that that is the way that you most readily learn something. And because you're actually getting that signal from your own brain saying this is how you're supposed to learn, you'll learn better. That's my theory on it. I don't know that that's accurate or true, but I do know that I am able to focus better on learning new information if I am also doing something with my hands, like playing with a fidget toy. I also kind of get the feeling that naming, because it's such a subtle thing, is something that almost happens by collateral as opposed to seeming intentional. Explain that. The sense that I get about Elodin's lessons are that they're holistic. That naming is not just a discrete topic that you can just give a lecture on how to do and then someone will then be able to do. Instead, you have to get them used to thinking about the world in a certain way. So even that distinction between naked and nude that Quoth brings up mockingly, well, that's getting at a way of thinking about the world and the way that words interact with it. And as you start thinking about words and as you start thinking about what words are, which is to say names and how you describe them and how that description affects the actuality of the thing being described and how you perceive it, that is really what it means to get at the heart of naming. So there are two things that come into my head when you're talking about it like this. One is micro labels. So within the LGBTQIA plus alphabet soup, it is easier for me to say queer, but more accurate for me to say panromantic, asexual, gender flux from demigirl to agender and get the look of, what did you just say? <laughs> so it's easier for me to just say I'm part of the community rather than to explain all my little tiny micro labels. But in order to really understand what I mean by saying queer, you have to know what those are. So there's that one. But then also within our mental health discussions that we have with each other just to check in and make sure that we know what's going on. There are terms like climbing that we have learned that explain where we are within our journey, within our day, within our processing. Sometimes it takes you a little bit longer to have to sit with a concept and process it or to climb through all of the sensory inputs to get to the thing that you want to get to for the day. Yeah, I mean, like yesterday I was kind of all over the place and it took me a little while to actually put my finger on why that was. 
I mean, even when we started recording this two weeks ago, it took a little bit to actually get my conscious mind to register that I was off. So a little bit of explanation of why we maybe sound a little bit different now than we did about two minutes ago is that we did split this recording into two weeks ago and now. But putting words to it, like I have to climb, trying to explain a concept can sometimes be difficult, but once you find a good analogy, a good word, a good label, a good name for it, it makes it easier for the other person to receive. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Elodin is trying to teach his students how to get into a flow state. I can see that. To spoil things that are going to be coming up here a bit, when we see Kvothe get into spinning leaf and start thinking about the Lathani, and when Kvothe is looking at the sword tree, he's getting into a flow state, and that's where he's actually able to access that sleeping mind part of himself and allow his unconscious mind to start doing some more heavy lifting and bring those resources to bear. I think part of it is also just being able to almost go into a magic eye state. Like when you look at a magic eye poster or image just normally, and all you see is just dots and chaos, and it doesn't make any sense at all. But then when you relax and widen your field of vision to encompass everything, the dots fall into place and you can actually see an image. Something that's hidden suddenly becomes glaringly obvious. If you're not colorblind. If you're not colorblind. Although there are black and white ones. Fair enough. But normal magic eye posters do not work for me. This is true. The ones that you would see most often in the malls in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> I never, ever, ever could see them. And I know why. It's because I'm red-green colorblind. Doesn't mean I can't see red. Doesn't mean I can't see green. It just means that they're desaturated. And things that other people can see are things that I just don't. I think that naming is kind of like that. So circling back to the text of the book... We see what happens when Elksadal is able to call the name of fire. He's able to stick his hand into a lit brazier and not hurt. Maybe it would have been really nice if Kvothe knew the name of fire when he went to go rescue Fella. We can think of a number of cases when it would have been handy for Kvothe. <laughs> True. Also thinking of Traben and the Dracus. Do we know that he doesn't know the name of fire? Because when he hears Elksadal say the name of fire, it sounds like fire. For all we know, Elksadal is saying burnt umber or something like that. Oh, you can come up with something way more creative than that. Pyrolicious. Or Yes, that's right. Fire. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Both tries to logic this a little bit in saying that but fire isn't actually a thing. It's just a chemical reaction. And Elksadal looks back and just goes, just ask Elodin. He's the one who claims to understand these things. I just work here. 
As if to say, whatever, Neil deGrasse Tyson, go bug someone else. <laughs> Alrighty. And as what happens so very often in these books, the next thing Quoth does is go search for Denna and Imre. You know, at this point, I think Denna really should just wear a red striped hat and stocking cap, and then we can have the real Where's Waldo experience. One thing that just got me thinking here is that Denna's absence becomes something that Kvothe notices more than most. And he feels the negative space where he thinks she ought to be in a way that he doesn't when she's around. I mean, he wouldn't feel the negative space where she ought to be if she is around. I guess what I'm trying to say is that he almost is caught by surprise when she is around. and She's never where he's looking for her. That is the point of her existence, it seems like, in these books, at least so far. So, I mean, naturally, he starts by going to the inn where she's been staying, only to find that she's not there. Then he heads to the Aeolian, because where else is he going to go? And we get more time with Threp, who is delightful and has been missed. And it's interesting, actually. Kvothe notices the absence of Denna, but not the absence of Threp. He notices the absence of Denna when he doesn't notice the absence of most people. True. One thing that I noticed here is one of the descriptors of Threp's attire includes blue suede shoes. So now I just can't help but think of him as like high fantasy Elvis. <laughs> Got it. Yep. No. Mm -hmm. Can't get rid of that. Well, at this point, we get a little more of the classism problem that Kvothe faces. And also an interesting look at how Threp, I'm not sure if he's oblivious or if he just doesn't care in terms of Kvothe is very aware of how shabby he looks, that he would not fit where Threp is normally. But somehow the Aeolian has equalized them so that Threp doesn't have to care that Kvothe looks like he hasn't had a bath in three days and that his clothes are tattered and torn and that his loot case is held together by a shoestring and paper clips. I mean, the Aeolian has the illusion of being a meritocracy. And especially in most illusory meritocracies, if you find that you've risen through the ranks, you tend to believe that it's because of your own worth. Kvothe and Threp both essentially have risen in their respective societies and they've internalized those structures. And so whereas Threp doesn't really have to deal with any of the problems inherent in it, it never really weighs on him. Kvothe has really internalized a lot of this stuff, whether it's the time when he was serving in Master Greyfellow's troop, where he had to wear the colors and you know, make sure that they were putting on a good appearance for everyone else, specifically because of their role within that society. I would actually argue that he thinks that they got to wear them and not had to wear them. A difference in wording. That's fair. But that difference in wording is important. I agree. I think it also really calls to where he feels right now. In his current state, he feels that he is not fit to appear before anyone of birth. He's internalized his worth according to what society would say. Clothes do not make the man, but you need the proper costume if you want to play the part. And I think that 
with the right attitude, he could pull it off. But I think that he has so internalized his financial status, that ledger, that he will never break out of it without a major change. And what's also interesting to me here is that it never occurs to him to ask Threp for help with clothing. It doesn't occur to him to ask anyone for help. And again, I've been in similar situations, not wanting to feel like you owe someone something. It's how I wound up with the crappy car that I had when we first started dating. The car that I had when I moved to Medford, Oregon, was one that I loved. It was my Subaru Outback that I absolutely adored. It was in 2009, so one of the financial crises that we've lived through. And I did not have enough money to pay off the last, like, six car payments. I was so close. And it never occurred to me that it wouldn't be a hardship on other people to help me. And I didn't want to be a burden. And so there were two options available to me. And I took the one that was less optimal for myself because I didn't want to owe people anything. And the less optimal version of this was to trade my car for a different car with the person that I knew and have them pay off my car loan and get my nice car and give me one that couldn't go up a shallow incline in the snow. The other option that was available to me that I didn't take was that one of my friends was willing to pay off my car loan, let me keep my car, and let me pay them. Stubborn and stupid and prideful. So I've been there. It's understandable, but it's also sad because we know that Threp wants to get Quoth a patron and that Threp values Quoth as a performer, as a person, and as a musician, and as a friend. He wouldn't think twice. Like, it doesn't occur to him that clothing would be an obstacle because it's never been an obstacle for him. But it is something that he would probably not even bat an eye about saying, hey, come on, I'll take you to a tailor. Let's get you fixed up. And, you know, it's something about privilege where it's one of the limits that we all face, I think. The more privileged we are, the less we recognize those privileges just in our day-to-day -day life until we are actually confronted with someone who does not have those privileges. I see this a lot of times. I grew up fairly privileged, all told, and I was not always aware that a lot of the things that I took for granted, you know, things like having routine meals, things like having a roof over my head, things like knowing that there was always going to be food in the fridge, I didn't really think about those things until I was confronted by people who did not have that growing up. I didn't have that growing up. And I didn't see myself as underprivileged. I still had a roof over my head. But at the end of each month, there wasn't any food in our refrigerator. But I didn't see myself as being someone that needed to seek out assistance. Like, I didn't see that that was a thing that my family such as it was, needed. I thought that less privileged people than I was were the ones that were in need. Looking at my situation through the lens of, like, looking to the past, my family needed food stamps because I, at 14 years old, needed to have food 
for the last three days of the month. But it also set up really bad precedence for me as being a person who wouldn't take handouts or what I perceived as handouts. I've volunteered so many times at food banks and homeless shelters taking care of kids that their parents are going to parenting classes while they're in a homeless shelter. Feeling like, well, at least that's not my situation. And willingly giving that help. Not feeling like the people who needed the help are bad. Feeling like they just needed the help. They're humans. They're other people. We should do what we can to make sure that their lives aren't just pure misery. Not looking at it from a situation of, oh, maybe I also need some help. So then when I was living in a situation where, by all rights, I should have applied for food stamps when I was an adult and didn't have a job, I made willful, prideful decisions because I didn't want to appear like I was taking advantage of systems that are actually just meant to help people. Right. And even still, like, those systems are designed so that they can give people that leg up so that they can get on their feet. And it's really hard when you feel like you shouldn't be on your feet. It's not that I felt like I shouldn't be on my feet. I felt like that whole bootstraps thing was real. Right. That you hadn't bootstrapped yourself up, so therefore you shouldn't have anything helping you up. Right. I get it. And it's really easy to internalize that. You look at all of the cultural messages that our society sends us. The way culture talks about everything that you see, and it's stuff that you don't even think about. Like, you sort of get the idea that if someone has something, they deserve it. Right, and if you do not have something, it's a moral failing. And it is really pernicious. It is very difficult to work your way out of it. And we can see that it's worked a number on Quoth. He's lived his life with very little in the way of kindness or hospitality towards him. And honestly, this has only been like four or five years. That's enough. It changes the way your mind works. And Quoth is dealing with a lot of lasting trauma here. And I understand it. And it is tragic. His brain has been wired to expect that no one will help him. Ever. So he's not even going to ask. But then we turn around and see that he is willing to help Denna. I don't know that he knows how to help Denna. I think he's trying his best in this particular instance by trying to figure out, hey, this seems a little fishy, the way that her patron is behaving towards her, at least the third-hand information that I have about this sneaky person who doesn't want his name to be known, who is asking my friend to do things that are dangerous or weird. He's asking her to do things she's not strictly comfortable doing. And I think also for someone who doesn't necessarily have firsthand knowledge of what the patron relationship actually entails, he's asking the right people. Because for once, Quoth doesn't know something and is asking an expert. Now, this is also something that I've done. Not advocating for myself, but advocating for a friend. It was a lot easier for me to take my best friend around to go get applications for working at pretty much anywhere 
within walking distance of her home than it would be for me to do it. I know that feeling where you feel completely powerless to fix your own problems, but someone else's problems definitely feel tackleable. Is tackleable a word? I don't know. I, I It felt weird the moment I said it. Yeah, that's okay. I'll leave it in. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we're on the same page with that. Yeah. So I guess my next question is, is Kvothe's concern for Denna real or is it performative? I think it's real. He is also, I think, wondering, is this what's in store for him? I think he is concerned about Denna. I, I think he's sincere where she is concerned. I also think he is worried that this thing that he's been seeking after for so long may be similarly exploitative. His parents may have shielded him from the realities of what having a patron is like. And also just the virtue of being young. Something that seems perfectly normal can be pretty horrifying when you actually look at it from a fresh perspective. I think it is a breath of fresh air, though, that Threp is like, no, 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 no. That sounds sketchy. Threp seems to give good advice. Also validating advice. Well, and part of it is this is why Kvothe, I think, considers him a friend. Because Threp always treats Kvothe as someone who matters. And his take on it is that everyone matters. That all of the people around him are important. He does not make a distinction based on what their clothes look like, what they may smell like in this case. We know Kvothe's a little bit smelly at this point. Little ripe. And he's also not judging Kvothe on his worst day. Everybody has a bad day now and then, and we shouldn't be judging people on their worst day. That's a valuable thing to keep in mind. And so when Threp says, oh, no, that is not how you treat someone. And it's especially not how you treat a woman. I'm of two minds here. The egalitarian part of my brain is like, men can be taken advantage of in the same ways that a woman could be taken advantage of. We just expect that women are more vulnerable to this. And in some ways, it's not necessarily even that if you look at it from the opposite direction. Because people think that men are not susceptible to it, it is less likely that they'll attempt to do it to men. Whereas we believe that women are more vulnerable to this, so the people who prey upon others tend to seek out women as their victim. And it's, I think, really a statement here about how power structures can reinforce predatory behavior. And when you live in a fairly nakedly sexist society, especially as the society of the Four Corners is, that predatory behavior towards women especially is much more likely to happen. We see it in our own culture as well, where even in segments of the culture that purport to be egalitarian and feminist supporting, we see people who use that as a shield for their own predatory behavior. And it's incredibly damaging. On top of that, though, we also use the fear of that as a way to discriminate. Reining that back in. One last little bit of this chapter that we definitely need to talk about. Yes. 
So the final bit is as Quoth is walking back to the university, he starts to feel a strange tingling. Not that kind of tingling. <laughs> <laughs> we both went there in our brains. You just said it first. <laughs> Not the pleasant kind of tingling. And it's in his arm and his chest. Heart attack? No. A strange heat. Burning sensation. Which is especially ominous considering all of this talk about people being cooked from the insides. He's not actively doing anything other than walking, so he's not causing his own internal cooking. But the heat grew more intense, and he felt like it was painful, and that he had the sensation of boiling water going across his chest, which, oh my, uh, steam burns, and scalding, and boiling, and it's just, ah. But he took a dunk in the river. And for someone who is very conscious of how people perceive him, this is a statement to just how much all of this is hurting Quoth. I stayed there trying not to feel like an idiot while a young couple walked past, holding hands and pointedly ignoring me. The thing is that they probably don't care. I mean, we perceive embarrassments much differently than the people witnessing our embarrassment do. And that's sometimes the only way that I can get through an embarrassing situation is if I try to look at it from the other point of view, because otherwise I'd be mortified. Anyway, at the end of this, he says, well, now I'm shivering. I'm going to wrap myself up in my cloak and traipse back to the university, dripping wet and really afraid. The implication of this is that somebody has his blood. You know, and I'm just going to say, even in a universe without sympathy, it's really terrifying when your body starts doing things that you didn't ask it to do. Like, that kind of behavior is terrifying, even if there is no malicious force behind it. I'd say especially if you don't know what is behind it, because there might not be a malicious force behind things, but... Like, even just waking up with your back spasming is terrifying sometimes. Experiencing a heart attack has to just be like, ugh, or a stroke. Like, those things would be bad enough. But the idea that there is also magic in the fact that he is under 20 years old and, yeah, malnourished, but generally healthy, I guess. Maybe. Ish. Ish. I don't know. If I were him, I'd probably be freaking out, too. I think his freaking out is justified. <laughs> so, with that, let's go ahead and talk about our Fernemos. So it's my turn this week. So, there are a couple options here. I mean, Threp and Stanchion are both giving good advice to Quoth, and I think that's worthwhile. But I'm actually going to give it to Elksadol this week. So first of all, he knows what he's good at. So he knows that he's really good at sympathy. He understands it in and out. And he also knows what he's not good at. He knows enough about naming to know that he's not an expert. And he knows that Elodin is really good at it. So maybe that's the guy you should be asking about that stuff. And meanwhile, I think the thing that really tips him over into being a Phronimos this week is the way that he looks at Quoth. He listens to Quoth, not just what Quoth says, but what he doesn't say. He is taking an interest in Quoth as a human being, 
as a whole person and recognizing that this is a gifted student, but he's not invincible. And that even as he's putting on a brave face, he's definitely showing some wear and tear. He's feeling weary. And even as Quoth is protesting that, no, no, everything's fine, Elksadal is smart enough to know that, no, he's not fine. And it's okay to be not fine. And that, in fact, he will help take care of Quoth until he is fine, without judgment. Speaking of Elksadal, in the future, we also know that he is a catalyst for furthering the plot, as it were, or maybe just encouraging Quoth to seek other experiences. And I think that, in a way, he's a rudder for Quoth's life. He's a steadying influence, and he can help steer without overtly suggesting a path. I think what he does is open Quoth's eyes to possibilities. And he looks into who Quoth is. He's one of many masters at the university, I think, who do this. I think he does this. I think Kilvin does this. I think Kilvin does it in a different way. I think Kilvin tells Quoth that he needs to be better, that he needs to follow his passions and not stagnate. Kilvin pushes him to go beyond the first order optimized strategy and look for something deeper. Whereas I think Elksadal encourages him to take in new experiences. I think Elodin tries to do this. So I think Elodin may not be the best teacher. That's why I said he tries to do this, not that he does do this. <laughs> so as I've explained before in previous recommendations, I'm rereading The Broken Earth. Elodin reminds me a lot of Alabaster. Yeah, yeah. He grocks things on such an immediate instinctive level that it's really hard for him to put into layman's terms. It's kind of like when I was in DigiPen and they put the head of mathematics in charge of teaching people who were not going to continue with math and just needed basics. Or what essentially for me was a refresher of high school math. And he's like, I get this on such a higher level than you do that it is impossible for me to teach it to you. Yeah, it is really tough for a virtuoso to teach. And the thing is, I think if you're standing on a higher platform, you can teach to someone like in the middle, but it's hard to teach to someone at the bottom. And we were at the bottom. I really appreciate Elksadal here. I think he's the right mixture of benevolent and he has just enough mystery about him to get Quoth interested in things because we know that that's catnip for him. <sighs> Quoth is a cat. Yeah, he's a little ginger kitty. He really is. Belongs to Will and Sim. <laughs> but we seem to like characters that are like this. Like, we've been watching Lucifer, and Lucifer is most definitely a cat. Most telling by the fact that he doesn't like cats. Cats don't like other cats. Except if you're Sokka, and then you're Sokka and going, why doesn't the other cat in the house like me? Well, while we're talking about things that are interesting, it's your turn for the interesting fact of the week. It is. 
Now, remember, we prepped for this two weeks ago. And so two weeks ago, this was more relevant than it is now, but it's still going to be at least a fun thing for me to share. So at the time of beginning to record this, the 2021, or rather 2020, Olympics had just wrapped up and everyone is talking about how the U.S. won the medal count. But what is more interesting to me, at least, is that the U.S. women specifically kicked butt. U.S. women earned 66 medals as compared to the men who won 41, which is also impressive. I'm not saying it is not. One stat that I saw was that if the U.S. women were separated out to count as their own country, they'd be number four in terms of the medal count, which is really impressive because there have been so many amazing athletes throughout the entire world represented in this. So there were so many talented women athletes, each with their own stories, including Molly Seidel, a barista that went to the Olympic trials for shirts and giggles and ran her very first marathon ever at those trials and won a spot at the Olympics. Her bronze medal win was only her third marathon ever. That's pretty amazing. A marathon is not something that people just do. That's a lot of training. Apparently not. <laughs> but she had to be doing a lot of other training to be able to put herself into a position to do that. Yeah, that has to have been a lot of work. I don't actually know how much training she did before the Olympic trials. Presumably she trained. If not, that's even more impressive to me. And also like, I'm never going to do that. First of all, I hate running. Even when I was working out constantly, it was mostly swimming, and I like that a lot better. I do not like to run. So, good on her. Oh my goodness. So then, the U.S. women's soccer team brought home the bronze, and the U.S. women's gymnastic teams won silver. U.S. women medaled in diving, and fencing, and sport climbing, and the sport climbing was so fun to watch. Yeah, it's like competitive Spider-Man. <laughs> But to be honest, as impressive as, quote, our women were, I'm mostly just on team cool shirt when it comes to watching the Olympics. And the women's events were amazing. So the Canadian soccer team celebrated the first instance of a trans non-binary athlete by the name of Quinn, who actually is on the team that I root for anyway in the U.S., the Reign, because, you know, we come from Seattle and I kept my team when we moved down south and I'm just it makes me so happy <laughs> and I love watching women's soccer even more than the men because they tend to take more risks or at least it looks like they do and then they won not only a medal but they won the gold medal Canada did and then we've got Charlotte Worthington from Great Britain who landed the very first ever 360 backflip in an Olympic competition for women's BMX freestyle. It was so cool to watch. I really, really enjoyed that. I'm kind of of the, like, <gasps> my heart stopped, but I figured that they wouldn't show the replay if, you know, she broke her neck or something. Okay, I hope not. Anyway, <laughs> and then there were two 13-year-olds and a 16-year-old from Japan and Brazil winning medals in the skateboarding street competition. And a 34-year-old woman from the U.S. came in fourth, like five years younger than me. 
went to the Olympics to skateboard and came in fourth. Like, ah! (laughs) You know, watching the women's skateboard events, the whole thing really felt like skate camp. Where, like, these girls were just all happy to be hanging out with these people who cared about doing the same thing they did. Like, you got the sense that the girls from Japan were taking the kids from Canada and Brazil and the U.S. and Great Britain out to the local cool sushi spots. And then they'd come back and then they'd roast marshmallows around the campfire and sing songs. And <laughs> Like, that was my weird headcanon about all of that. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, so I could keep going on about impressive feats. Like how the U.S. water polo keeper Ashley Johnson successfully blocked 11 shots on goal, helping our team win the gold medal. Or how Allison Felix became the most decorated Olympic track athlete in U.S. history, while also working to raise money to help other Olympians with childcare whilst they competed. And how a whole bunch of others whose hard work and dedication are such an inspiration to people all over the world. But I think you get my point. I'm just... I'm so floored by how dedicated and amazing and beautiful to watch all of these people, all of these women were during this competition. And yeah, you can have some ethical issues with the Olympics. I definitely have some ethical issues with the Olympics. You can also have ethical issues with the Olympics during a pandemic. Totally get ya. I'm right on board right there with you. But I think that if we're worried about protecting women's sport at all, genuinely, then the best thing that we can do is celebrate the women who do amazing things when it comes to sports. And oh my goodness, I am so happy that skateboarding and BMX are in the Olympics. Yeah, I believe that the hardest part for us was picking our jaws off the floor, like, after each run. (laughs) Like, the BMX freestyle in particular was just absolutely jaw-dropping in terms of what the athletes were doing, and we were just both in awe. (laughs) And I think that the best thing that we could do is just encourage more women to take more of those same risks that the men get to take where we look at women as these little delicate flowers that need to be taken care of and little girls can't possibly want to skateboard down a steep incline and not hurt themselves. Whereas we celebrate little boys who want to learn to skateboard or want to learn BMX and we encourage them to take all of the risky behavior that wind up looking really cool when you watch it on TV. And I think that we need to make sure that we're not just holding all of the women and all the girls back from expressing themselves if that is what they want to do. Same thing though, like we shouldn't be discouraging young boys or men from doing things that are typically considered feminine. Agreed. Your turn. Yep. All right. So it's my turn for thing of the week and it's also sports related. So two weeks ago when we first started recording this, the English Premier League returned, and so what I'm going to recommend is pick yourself a professional European soccer club. Pick a team to follow for literally any reason and then stick with them. It's okay if they suck. 
It's that much more satisfying if they win. I was going to say it's even better if they suck. It's a great way to spend a morning and you have your excuse for day drinking. As Roger Bennett writes in Encyclopedia Blazertanica, if a gent in a bar is drinking a beer at 7.30 in the morning, society deems him to be an alcoholic. If Liverpool are losing to Bournemouth on a television in that very same bar, whilst the aforementioned beer is being quaffed, we consider that man an American soccer fan. And this is true regardless of your gender, by the way. Enjoy yourself that beer at 7.30 while you watch Liverpool lose to Bournemouth. I mean, and the fact is that no true fandom works without a specter of doom looming in the distance for your club, whether that's impending relegation, humiliation to local rivals, or disastrous financial mismanagement. It makes the comeback all that much sweeter. So the best thing about European soccer is that if your team comes in last, you don't get the top draft pick. You get kicked down to the lower level and you get replaced by the best team in that same lower level. So if you go down, there's a chance you can go back up. We have right now, for instance, Leeds United is playing in the English Premier League. After having spent over 15 years playing in the lower leagues, like they'd gotten all the way down to the third division due to a series of terrible financial decisions that only pushed them further into debt and they were struggling to get out of. But through clever recruiting and good coaching, they've been able to work their way back up. I think it's really cool to watch that happen. You had teams like Leicester City back in 2016. They had come from League One only three years earlier, all the way up to the Premier League, and then they won the whole thing. That sort of thing just is so statistically improbable, but you still love being able to see it happen. Even as you do have certain teams that have essential financial hegemony that allows them to do literally anything they want with virtually no consequence but it is delightful to see those same giants fail. One of the glories is watching Manchester United, who is this storied club that's been around for over a century, that has been playing at high levels almost since the beginning, fade into mediocrity over the past, you know, 15 years or so. (laughs) (laughs) Not a rival for your club. But that sort of thing is delightful that it can happen. And even as they have more money than God, they're still not able to spend their way out of it. You know, it, it is so much fun to watch that happen. <laughs> um, my own personal club is Tottenham Hotspur, a team lodged firmly in mediocrity. And every year, there's kind of a Cubs-like sense that maybe this will be our year. You know, we've got a new manager this year. And, I mean, it transformed my Twitter feed into basically just my various rants about certain managerial candidates. And certain of our fans who followed me for book Twitter found out that, oh no, I'm more sports Twitter. (laughs) You're more niche sports Twitter. You're not even just sports Twitter. Yes, this is true. Sorry about that. (laughs) Although I don't think that Will is. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not at all sorry. I am who I am and I make no apologies. Whereas... I only really have enough energy to have one Twitter, and that's our Twitter. I just don't have it in me to really keep up my own. Point being, pick yourself a European soccer team. You'll thank yourself for it. All right. 
So with that out of the way, let's get to our seven words. So I had words from the book this week. So I have a number of choices here. So one I have is bindings of the sort we'd shown Denna were simple. Eh, I don't really love that one. It was like juggling in the dark. Eh. Will anyone even bet against you anymore? That dried up a long time ago. Also, eh. Then, how are your studies progressing with Elodin? You've been looking a little ragged lately. Then I've got, yesterday, you know what Elodin lectured about? And then, I'll stand you a mug of Metheglin. And finally, the one I actually chose, names reflect true understanding of a thing. I mean, this is the core thesis of the books. This is the central foundational truth of the world that Patrick Rothfuss has created. And I think it's something that Quoth understands intellectually, but hasn't truly mastered yet. So how about you? You've got words from life. I do. So a couple of weeks ago was our ninth wedding anniversary. A day that every year we look at each other and go, well, I think it's on the 18th or the 19th of August. And you go, well, I think it's on the 19th or the 20th of August. And neither one of us really has an attachment to the day, but we do have an attachment to the event. And each other. Oh, yeah. Most definitely to each other. Neither one of us are what one would call traditionally romantic, I think. I don't like flowers, and I don't like chocolates, and I don't like all the stuff you're supposed to want to get for your partner for an anniversary or whatnot. Like, for instance, my favorite things that have ever happened on Valentine's Day include, hey, how about we watch, like, four Star Trek movies in a row? Or, here, have a violent video game and Lego. And that was your gift to me, not me giving that to you. I like that we have our own love language back and forth and that we both get each other. So my words from life are books and ice cream. You get me. Because that was our anniversary this year. Will took me to a bookstore. We bought all the books we didn't own from N.K. Jemison, and we got Earl Grey ice cream that kind of tasted more like spiced ginger ice cream. I'm not sure. It was still good, but it was not what I expected. And I think we probably sat on the couch together and watched Lucifer. Sounds about right. I'm not going to say things like romance is dead at nine years of marriage, but that's probably more because we never had, like, the traditional romance. We just got to spend a nice, comforting day together. And we got to go out for sushi. On the weekend, to this wonderful little sushi place that Will has taken me to for my birthday before. So, stuffing ourselves with raw fish. Oh, so good. So good. And then we discovered a cute little farmer's market. And it was just a lot of fun. You find ways to take me out of a strict comfort zone in order to find other comforts. For instance, our first date, sort of, thing was to a Thai restaurant I'd never had Thai before. And it was delicious, and I love it. You took me to all sorts of different types of places than where I've traditionally eaten. 
And now I love Indian and Eritrean food was really, really good. And I eat way more raw fish sushi stuff. And I love looking for different ways to find solutions to problems like my little tiny part of helping with global warming is to reduce meat intake. And therefore, I am more willing to try things that are vegan or vegetarian pretend meat. And I think you've opened my eyes to the idea that comfort doesn't need to be familiarity. Well, to my mind, as long as I'm with you, it's plenty of comfort, no matter how strange the circumstances we may be in. I love you. I love you too. And now we've made the entirety of our audience vomit. With that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 23 and 24 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of asking for help. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the show whenever I actually wind up posting it. And it could be anywhere from like a few weeks before the episode drops to like three days before the episode drops. So yay. We also have Patreon exclusive bonus pods, which we are going to start recording another one soon and other exciting items and i need to work on a poster i just remembered that oh no there will be one in september i have made that promise crap anyway (laughs) and as always here's to one more day above the roses to one more day above the roses ding Get the frog out of your throat, please. Make all the unpleasant noises that I don't want to edit out later. You just watch soccer. I mean, I don't even have like a tenth of the lung capacity of a Brazilian soccer announcer. So, neither do I. Yeah, but you looked at me funny. (laughs) I don't know why you were trying to be a Brazilian soccer announcer.